Okay, should we, should we make a start? I am Jonathan Mickey, I'm Director of the Department for Continuing Education here, so welcome. And do stop me at any time if you want me to repeat anything, explain anything, if you disagree with anything I say, if you want to debate, do stop me at the time because much better to do that while I know exactly what it is you want me to um, defend or explain or repeat rather than at the end. Uh, but also, if, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, probably half of the room will be in the same position. I'll introduce myself um, a bit more in a second, um, but first, before getting on, on to introductions, you may have seen in some of the newspapers they've been um, marking the fifth anniversary of, of when the global financial system imploded into the collapse of, of Lehman Brothers. Um, and funny enough, that was just around the, the time that I came back to Oxford to this role. So the university, uh, they have annual online debates, and so they launched a, a debate on did the financial crash mean the end of, of uh, laissez-faire, uh, and I got involved in, in that debate, and I'll come on to. Then I'll say something about what I think caused the, the 2008 um, crash, what's happened since, and then go on to um, future prospects and what we should, what needs to be done. And I'll try and keep it uh, short and we can continue the discussion over a glass of wine. Mm. Firstly, um, actually, can, um, can people indicate how many people here um, have ever done a course at the department here or any other part of the university? Most of you, but, but not all. Um, so for those who don't know, I'll say something briefly, welcome everyone to the University of Oxford, then say something about the department and then introduce myself. So for those of you who don't know uh, about the University of Oxford, it gets more research funding than any other university uh, in Britain. In case you didn't know, it does have the leading department for continuing education um, in Britain. Uh, and not a, not a lot of people know that. Um, but it's actually not surprising, and it's related to the reason why this event is being held today in particular, which I hope you all realise, uh, September 26th uh, is 135 years to the day since the University of Oxford gave their first public extension lecture. And uh, commitment to continuing education, lifelong learning, has always been seen by the University of Oxford as a very important part of, of what they do unlike um, a lot of other universities uh, across Britain. And in fact, does anyone here know why the Department of Continuing Education is based in Rudy House in particular? How long we've been here or how it came about? It was because after the First World War, the government established a royal commission to look into the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, the Asquith Commission, which uh, sat for, for three years, 1919 to 1922, and concluded at the end of that that universities of Oxford and Cambridge should have departments for continuing education, and they should be as central as possible, central to the university, central to the, the cities, which is why the university bought Rooley House five years later. I'm afraid it's always taken the university at least five years to get around to doing anything, but uh, 1927 they bought Rooley House in order to, to um, house its continuing education uh, department, so we've been here um, ever since. The, the, the other lead, the second, second most impressive <coughs> department of continuing education 
in, in Britain is actually in Cambridge. So I think that's you know isn't is no coincidence. It came from that 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 Oxford and Cambridge as leading universities were seen certainly by Parliament and government as having a responsibility, a duty to have um, uh, well um, invested in departments for continuing education. Oxford University Press is also by far the most successful university press in the world. Um, the Vice Chancellor was here, he'd point out that it's more successful under just about any measure than all the American university presses and Cambridge University Press put together. It's, uh, it's that successful. Um, it's generally acknowledged that the two leading museum collections, university museum collections of Harvard and, and Oxford, and I think it's generally acknowledged that, that um, Oxford is the leading collection globally of university museums, the Ashmolean Natural History, and so on, which I hope you all realize is all, well, Ashmolean down at the bottom of this road, all free of charge. If you've not been there, you should definitely go and, and have a look. And I should say about continuing education, actually, the leading North American universities have the same um, tradition, so they almost all have very impressive continuing education operations. Uh, and I'd say, though, that Oxford is certainly one of the top two in the world. I'd say the only university which could um, genuinely claim to have a better, more impressive department for continuing education is Harvard. So, welcome to, to Oxford, which is a very good university. Um, department for continuing education, we therefore, for those who can see ourselves as an internationally recognised centre of excellence for lifelong learning, continuing education, both on professional programmes, explicit CPD professional training through to programs um, for people uh, to, to educate themselves more on any any subject which might interest them for their own you know, personal um, intellectual interest. Um, we work with organisations though as well as putting on programs for um, the public and we, we aim to, to put on programs as flexibly as possible you know, both every every evening for 10 weeks as well as intensively um, <coughs> over a weekend in summer schools and increasingly actually on online programmes uh, so that people not only in Oxford across Britain but around the world can do these 10-week courses you know, virtually um, together uh, in small groups and discussing the issues each, each week um, with their Oxford tutor and, and with each other. And more than 15,000 students a, a year do one of those courses or other, which is interesting because actually that's far more than the rest of the university together recruits each year to all the other university programmes. Myself, I came to, to um, Oxford actually to Balliol College uh, in 1976 to do politics, philosophy and economics, and Oxford is a strange university in a number of ways, one of which is it's probably one of the only universities in the world where you can't do straight economics as an undergraduate. Traditionally, you had to do it with politics and philosophy. Politics, so you'd understand the institutional environment of uh, the economy and how economies um, develop, and philosophy, so that you'd know how to think. Um, now, you can actually do it with management and business because universities uh, change a bit, but, but you still have to do it in combination. Um, I was a college lecturer in economics, then went into various policy jobs, ended up in uh, Brussels. Um, expert was the job title, not my description of my, myself, but I should say I wasn't responsible for designing a euro. I did uh, various economic jobs there. And uh, the, the next bit I would have kept quiet until recently when I decided actually to become a, an academic, um, 
I went to Cambridge. Um, I would have kept that quiet, but actually our, our Vice Chancellor uh, of Oxford, Professor uh, Andrew Hamilton, um, he's actually the first, it's the first time Oxford's ever appointed a Vice Chancellor who didn't have a previous Oxford connection. And he actually did his, his PhD at Cambridge. So we're now allowed to admit him to like company that we've uh, <laughs> been to the other place. I was, and funny enough, there's links to the, the fact about flexibility in the department here. Um, when, I'm, when I'm explaining university and department to, to foreign dele delegations, um, I tell them which it's true that up until 1990, you weren't allowed to work during term time if you're an Oxford student. And American delegations in particular are always you know, <laughs> aghast at that since they've always uh, thought you worked through, through education. Um, and that's still true actually in Oxford for undergraduate students. Um, but in 1990, it was the first time that Oxford allowed you to carry on with your job um, and do a postgraduate uh, degree at the same time. And people, particularly Americans, sometimes say, well, that can't be right because you can't have a business school unless you've got an executive MBA, which by definition allows executives to continue in their roles while they're doing their, their MBA. But of course, the point is, up until 1990, Oxford wouldn't allow a business school either, uh, and neither would Cambridge. It was only in the 1990s that both Oxford and Cambridge finally decided that management and business was a legitimate um, area of academic uh, endeavour. Uh, so I became head of the economics, finance and accounting uh, group of the business school in, in Cambridge. Then actually, head of, um, became the Sainsbury Professor of Management in London, head of the School of Management at Birkbeck College in London, which is very similar to continued education, most people working at the same time and then Dean of the Business School, University of Birmingham, um, and then back here. So that's my um, background. But I should explain and, and put into context what I'm, I'm going to argue about the economy and what's wrong and what's needed to put it uh, right. It's one of the things which is needed is, is better teaching and appreciation of economics, I, as it used to be taught uh, in, in Oxford with an appreciation of the historic um, and institutional importance and so on. And I think one of the problems is economics as a discipline became much too narrow and they started believing their own models and, believe, and thinking that the world worked in that way and actually asserting it quite aggressively until the whole thing collapsed. Um, following which they've not really they've carried on <laughs> in the same way actually. Yeah. Um, so actually the reason I went into management of business schools um, was because I was interested, well, I, I, I didn't think that way of doing economics was, was right. Um, and imagine the business schools, people tend to have a, um, a greater appreciation of how the world actually works than uh, things which go on in, in the real world. But I'm actually delighted to come back to continuing education in Oxford because here we're able to teach economics in exactly the, the way um, I think it should be taught, the way Oxford traditionally always has done. Um, and actually, this is. Uh, my re most recent book, which does precisely um, that, looks at, um, as deliberately say, the political economy of the environment rather than just the economics of the environment, because to create a, a sustainable uh, <coughs> economy, and you have to think about institutions, um, legislation, regulation, etc., not just um, economics and, and prices and, and taxation and so on. And this also actually signals what I'm going to conclude at the end, that I, I think for the future we need a, a real shift in, in the economy, a sort of epoch-type shift, uh, which might sound radical, but actually if you look at the, the history of, of um, the world economy over the past 100, 200 years, it has come in really sort of 
30 year um, eras, really, in different, different eras of, of the world economy. Um, but a very successful one after the Second World War, sometimes referred to as the golden age of capitalism, um, up until the 1970s when um, there were all sorts of economic <coughs> problems. And then now we've had a, a sort of 30 year period of laissez faire economics and economics driven by the sort of models I was talking about as being unrealistic, which collapsed with the global credit crunch. And I think we now need a, a new sort of 30 year year of sustainable growth, economically sustainable as well as environmentally. Sorry, I've got one behind. So, five years since the, the um, collapse of Lehman Brothers and, and generally taken as the, the um, financial crash, already by 2007, you may remember, that there were some warning uh, signals, including um, in, in Britain, the Northern Rock difficulties, the, the bank run on the Northern Rock, where, where you had the queues of all around the, the bank all night for people um, to take their money out, something which we'd all been taught, those of us in the economics at school, had been solved uh, originally, because obviously when capitalism was developing and there was first attempts to establish banks, everyone was naturally suspicious about giving their money to this institution. Would the money be there if they went the next week to take it out again? So every time there was a rumour that the bank was in trouble, everyone would rush to get it out and of course the bank would collapse. Which is why they started having regulations for banks about how much money you had to keep in and so on. And those regulations it were increasingly repealed under lobbying by the, the banks uh, in the years, a couple of decades leading up to the, the crash. 2008 was the crash where we had the debate, I'll, I'll mention it again in a minute, about laissez-faire economics, which was then followed in 2009 by a, a global recession which, which um, technically, as well as actually, was the, the world's first uh, global recession since the 1930s. It was the first year since the 1930s where the, the um, income or output of the entire globe um, shrank, get sm got smaller. Up until then, during the 1950s, 60s, 70s, um, booms and slumps had, had really been about, um, well, A, rate of growth really, rather than actual um, decline, but also hadn't been spread globally in the, in the same way. Th this was the uh, uh, debate we had on, on the current financial crisis signs the death knell for laissez-faire capitalism. And um, I was arguing in, in favour of that, saying that um, it did sign the, the death knell, not because I was naive enough to think that the people who, uh, <coughs> who have got the, the wealth and the power and to uh, run the economy would, would uh, um, admit that what they've been doing and the ways they've been making so much money uh, were wrong and they would stop doing them and they would go back to having sensible um, economic regulations and so on. But more um, twofold, A, that it signed the death knell and that there had been a, a crash, um, there had been a, that had caused a, a global recession. Um, the banks had been um, bailed out by um, the taxpayers. And, it, and almost any measure, certainly the, the myth and hype of the financial sector and the economic profession about the sustainability of the, the um, boom up until 2008, that had been proved dramatically false, so there's a death knell in that sense, but also because I thought and still do think that it should be the death knell, so we should go on to more appropriate and sustainable um, policies. Uh, the moderator was Colin Mayer, who at the time was the, the dean of the um, business school here in Oxford Science Business School. He'd just written a very good book about, actually about the corporation where 
Helix more of the individual company and how uh, historically companies were founded for a purpose, not just to <coughs> make a um, money or financial gain for the, the owner or the shareholders, but actually to you know, build a railroad or, or uh, um, sell food or whatever it was supposed to try to do. And that had been lost. And interestingly, that, that's why the companies were given limited liability, which meant you set up a company um, and uh, in the hope of making money and, and uh, failed, um, you didn't have to pay your debts, as you might have, uh, which is quite a big um, uh, gift to give to uh, uh, um, somebody who, who wants to uh, embark on that endeavour. But the reason company, the reason societies, governments did that was precisely because the, the, the companies, when they were asking permission to establish and, and receive limited liabilities, said that they, what their purpose was, whether it was to build a railroad or anything else. Anyway, and then that's me, and then Linda Yu uh, was the, uh, on the other side of the um, debate, but uh, um, very good uh, economist, uh, despite that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I go and say, actually, we, we did a, a lot of uh, podcasts um, subsequently about the, the, the crash and so on. And she actually wrote one of our um, most popular online courses department here on the new economic powers on the rise of, of China, India, uh, and so on, which remains one of, it's updated each year, remains one of our, our um, most popular uh, courses, online courses. Um, and the, this was the debate. Um, I'm pleased to say I won the debate, though, in the, uh, in the vote. It was a vote of all uh, online um, uh, vote. Thank you all, uh, Oxford alumni. Now, so, so what did um, cause it? I would argue um, that it was that whole era. There was a 30-year era during the, the 1980s um, onwards, which was an era of, of deregulation, privatization, um, demutualization, uh, financialization, and uh, uh, greed is good from the Wall Street film, that gecko character who, who uh, uh, argued that, that greed is good. It uh, allows successful companies to take over unsuccessful companies better off uh, for it and of course the, the um, bonus culture which is the news again today because the British government is trying to prevent um, any restriction on uh, well the European uh, restrictions on bonuses I think that all led up to uh, the credit crunch and interestingly some of this deregulation what was happening was that regulations were, were being scrapped um, where did those regulations come from? Some of the, the key ones, the most fundamental ones were introduced precisely because this laissez-faire economics had led to the Wall Street crash, the global depression, and the Second World War. So they thought, you know, no return to the 30s, Keynes and others all across the world, we must have a, a more rational system of, of economic governance and introduce all the, the Bretton Woods, as they are called, because that's the place in America they're <coughs> talking and meeting, um, Bretton Woods systems of fixed exchange rates, the World Bank, economic development, the International Monetary Fund, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those regulations were increasingly weakened or even abandoned, such as the idea that the speculative banks should be kept separate from high street banks, that was abandoned, so we can all get in it uh, uh, together. And that all helped lead up to, to the crunch. Um, epitomized, as I mentioned, by Northern Rock, the wine, so I'll hurry up. <laughs> the uh, about Northern Rock um, collapsing um, in Britain. Oh, Northern Rock, you probably know, was a successful mutual building society owned by its members until it was 
denuclearized from a private from a private bank, then uh, got involved in all the sort of speculative activities that the private banks did, went bankrupt, and had to be um, um, bailed out uh, by the British taxpayer. And Goldman Sachs in Greece, who you may remember, it was a few years ago now, it's reported, um, they were they were um, caught out sort of betting against the the Greek economy going forward. Um, sales and purchases of, of Greek bonds so that if the Greek economy got into trouble, they would make a, a lot of money. And what was um, scandalous about that is they were basically um, betting on, on Greek economic failure. Um, what was scandalous about that is it was them who had been advising the Greek economy, you know, Greek government, on their <laughs> economic policies and precisely how to um, present their, their um, accounts and so on. So they basically betting if Greece would fail because the books have been cooked, and they knew because they had cooked the books. Uh, so that was a particularly scandalous um, bit of uh, profiteering. However, the, the, um, there is one other point I'd like to make about this um, whole uh, era, which is one of the arguments used continually in favour of joining the, the deregulation um, uh, was that the world had become a a global marketplace, there was nothing individual governments could, could do anymore, so you may as well scrap the national regulations and, and uh, join in as best you, you can. And of course, in all sorts of ways, you know, the world is much more global. I just mentioned our 10-week courses are no longer just taught in Oxford, they're also taught online, so we've got students in Brazil or Venezuela or, or Hong Kong doing the, the course along with people um, in Oxford. But that argument about uh, Globalization, meaning that governments can't do anything, is, is uh, I think, well, oversimplified and a bit disingenuous. Oversimplified because actually a lot of economies are still quite different Germany from Britain, from um, uh, Taiwan, uh, or whatever, wherever. Um, but also, it's not as if this globalization was something which just happened and so governments could no longer do anything. This globalization was something that the governments, particularly the British government, <laughs> the American government, had deliberately brought about in that um, free market laissez-faire uh, form. Um, so I mentioned, yeah, me and Linda, you went on to, to discuss all these issues in, in a number of, of uh, podcasts, and all these are downloadable free of charge. Um, they should be accessible through the department's website, but something called iTunes U as well, which you, you can Google, which has got um, free talks from um, all the leading universities uh, across the world. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that Oxford is, is a, I think, got more um, material and downloads there than, than any other uh, university, and many of the most popular ones from people in this department, actually. Most points about globalization are in a, a book I edited with uh, leading people around the world, um, really exposing this idea that globalization means that um, nothing can, can be done. And that's used as the textbook of an of a online course we do called globalization which which I wrote I mentioned Linda you uh, has written one on global um, new economic powers uh, and I, I've done one globalization globalization so it's just a um, uh, courses I mean just to show that I'm not just saying this all after the event just because the, uh, <laughs> the financial system collapsed in 2007 I got this quote from somewhere I wrote in 1999 um, that in fact the econ economy is becoming increasingly interna internationalized does not dictate the form that this process has taken. The free market laissez-faire agenda is one being 
pursued by those who benefit from such a deregulated, winner-takes-all environment, but it is not the only choice uh, for the majority of the world's population that is an inappropriate one. Um, I think that um, <coughs> remains true and indeed was, was demonstrated even more forcefully by the global financial crunch. Um, so this is the online course we've got on globalization. These are 10-week courses we run each term. So um, they'll start in, in uh, um, well, the other, this term's one's full, full up, obviously, because it's not starting until, until January. Now, um, in relation to, to um, Euro crisis, um, you'll have seen the word omnishambles has made it into the Oxford um, Dictionary, so we can now refer to a situation that's been comprehensively mismanaged, characterized by, by a string of blunders and miscalculations, uh, which is, I think, a, a fair enough description of, of the Euro crisis. Um, but I think there's two key points about uh, the crisis in the Euro. Mm -hmm. Firstly, I would say, well, again, I told you so, because I did, in a book in 1988. I, I think the Euro was, a, again, it was, it was designed very much influenced by the economic repression, economic orthodoxy, as if markets just worked perfectly and you could just fill up a currency and everything would be fine, not understanding all the, the institutional factors, the, the uh, fact that the different societies and economies are operating differently, that's going to create frictions and so on. So I think it was a, um, it's another thing, I think, mainstream <laughs> economics, uh, got rather uh, wrong. But secondly, in terms of the, the current price, um, crisis, it wasn't just that Goldman Sachs had, had uh, cooked the books for the, uh, the Greek government and so on, but it was fund fundamentally that, that um, the banks had been uh, allowed to get too big to fail. So the banks were just ridiculously large compared to the economies they were operating in, whether it was in Iceland or Britain. And so it's true that the governments just couldn't allow them to fail. It really would have caused a complete collapse of of the whole um, economy. So governments did have to, to bail them out. And that did, along with the fact that there was a recession which always leads to increased government debt as um, less taxation comes in, did cause the, the sovereign debt crisis and, and the euro crisis. So um, economic prospects, without wanting to depress everyone <laughs> too much, um, I, mean, I think there is a, a real danger about a lost decade. That phrase comes from Japan, where two decades ago they had a similar thing, huge bubble, crash, and uh, very slow or stagnation really since then compared to their very dynamic growth um, up until the fact they got into that um, economic model of, of speculation and um, bubbles. Um, and I was saying this five years ago and the, the, the crash happened, this, this danger, unfortunately we already had a, a half <laughs> lost decade um, and things are still, still not looking very promising. And I, mean, I, I referred to, before to the 1929 Wall Street crash and the Great Depression, um, which fell into the Second World War, and obviously things were pretty grim throughout the 1930s, but at least in terms of the output of national income, there, there was a, um, some recovery, so generally the economies had recovered by 1933, uh, four years later, whereas here, five years after the crash, um, output in national income in Britain is still um, below uh, the level it was at the time of the crash, which um, you know, people just weren't, weren't expecting. People just assumed that it would just recover like economies generally do uh, recover. So I think that's a, um, a real problem. But more fundamentally, there, there just seems to be a, a huge complacency that 
you know, there are nice, some green shoots, things will recover in, and so that will be okay. Whereas the problem, I think, is if it's allowed to, if we allow things just to go back to the, the same old way, then there will be another global financial crash, whether it's in 10 years' time or, or 20 years' time. As we've seen in the past five years, that's not something which can be you know, easily afforded. <coughs> and here is an example of that. I think we're in good enough shape to start making the same mistakes again, which <laughs> is basically the attitude of boardrooms in Britain and um, government. So, what next? Well, this is a, um, a packed slide with, with sort of five lecture topics, each of which could be a, a lecture in its own sense. But, but uh, the key point uh, I make is that uh, we do need to rebalance the economy. The problem is everyone says that and then no one does anything. But, uh, but to uh, stress the point I was making at the beginning, that that's not something which can be done just by a little tinkering of building a few houses. What's needed is a, a real epochal change, as has happened in the history of the economies before, to get on to a completely different trajectory and abandon this mania with deregulation and laissez-faire, um, get back to economic sustainability, but also embed environmental sustainability, have a real Green New Deal along the, the lines of the scale of the, the New Deal in America in the 19, 1930s. Um, unfortunately, that Green New Deal has been used as a phrase by the current government for policies they've got, where I think you can loft your roof and they'll lend you the money and then you have to pay them back. Um, not surprisingly, I think that I just saw the figures where for this multi-million pound scheme, I think 27 people or something have <laughs> taken it up. And also what they should be doing is just doing a free for all mm -hmm. houses and properties you know, across the country in a, in a massive 10-year you know, programme to, to not just boost the economy but keep that going in a, in a sustained way. And on top of the need to, to move on to economic and environmental sustainability, I'd say social sustainability as well. So I, haven't, I haven't mentioned inequality, but obviously one thing which happened dramatically, if you see the figures during that whole year of laissez-faire deregulation, 1970s, 80s, 90s, was, was this um, ballooning of inequality, so that you know, income and wealth inequality today is just massively higher than, than it was 30 years ago, so in this country, but uh, globally as well. So a number of, uh, listed five key points there, there's obviously others which could be mentioned. One is, is corporate diversity, and, and the British economy in particular is dominated by large um, large companies. Obviously, six large energy companies have been in the news recently with the uh, uh, Ed Miliband's uh, um, plan to stop them uh, putting up prices any further for, for 20 months. But, but just generally, the economy is dominated by you know a few large energy companies, a few large banks, compared to other um, countries. So, and I said before about globalization, it doesn't mean that all, that all uh, countries are, are the same. So in, in Germany, for example, the financial um, sector, I mean, about a, a third of the companies will be publicly owned, whether by national government or regionally or, or locally, about a third by different forms of um, mutuals or cooperative banks, and about a third the sort of private banks that we've got that completely dominate um, the sector. Secondly, in terms of um, private companies, the, the PLCs, um, corporate governance needs to embed a long-term, uh, a longer-term um, outlook. Um, they shouldn't have this sort of quarterly financial reporting with a pressure on managers to keep the share price up the whole time for fear that they'll be um, taken over. And the fact that companies, it's so easy to, to take over a British company is again, it's quite peculiar in this country. Mm. Most, other, most other economies don't um, operate like that. Um, 
investment in long-term training, research, development, and innovation. Where again, one difference in Britain is that you, as a board of directors, decide to do that quite rightly as a company. The danger is, you know, a big other company will see those investments and, and take you over and asset strip that that part of the operation. Investment in people. Describe that as high commitment work systems. Um, that, that means really um, motivating, motivating people by by making them feel uh, engaged, including uh, through the use of employee ownership, like at, at John Lewis or other companies which have got an element of, of employee ownership, and a, a cooperative culture um, between companies, but universities um, elsewhere, which again other um, economies like. Uh, Germany do much better than we do. Um, some of this was was um, looked at and, and um, set out in the report of the ownership, uh, something called the Ownership Commission, which is look, set out to look at the, these issues of ownership and corporate ownership um, in Britain. It was chaired by Will Hutton, who used to be interested in the Observer, and when he started chairing this, he was head of the Work Foundation. Completely coincidentally, he seems to move to Oxford as head of Thank you. Yeah, Hartford College. Um, and this is this report, this big report, is downloadable free of charge, by the way. On, um, I'm also president of Kellogg College, which is the largest graduate college in Oxford. And the reason it's the largest is it was set up to look after um, students who wanted to carry on working while they did their postgraduate um, degrees in 1990. And those part time programs in sustainable urban development, everything space, healthcare. And so on, it proved so popular as by now by far the largest graduate college. And I've got a centre for mutual and employer and business there, where this and a lot of other reports are all downloadable free of charge as, as a PDF. So you know where I am. If anyone wants paper copies, I can, I can send them to you. Just let me know afterwards or email me. And finally, um, I think we do need a, a revolution in, in thinking, as I was, I was saying. So the, the bad news is, you know, it's not um, going to be simple or easy to, to get a real change of, of mindset you know, across the um, policymaking uh, um, groups uh, in society. Um, but you know, Oxford, you know, should be taking a, a lead. And the good news is, I think we are, in particular, in particular this department with uh, with the courses we've put on and what you've seen, and including the, and in particular the. the online economics courses where I mentioned the globalization one, new economic powers, we also got introduction to macroeconomics, introduction to microeconomics, one of social entrepreneurship, and this, the latest one, which is starting in a week's time you know, for, for the first time, is on employee ownership, which I would highly recommend. It, it sounds like quite a narrow topic, and it's in the John Lewis ownership model, but actually it's a very good course, which, is, which is, um, starts off from all the issues I've been talking about, about what went wrong with um, companies leading up to the credit crunch and, and what sort of different companies could be evolved in the future. Looking at examples like John Lewis, but also the Mont region in Spain where you've got 100,000 people in employee-owned companies linked to, um, together. I, I just checked, it's starting nec next week. Um, there are some places available, but the, the deadline is this coming Tuesday to do it. So if anyone wants to do it, you need to register sometime by Tuesday at the latest, and maybe before if other people are going to before you, so I'd urge you to particularly register on that one, but also do any other courses. So thank you all very much. Um,
If there are any questions, we can maybe take one or two questions and then, then carry on over a glass of wine. We criticise the euro, but the fact is it is 10% higher against the pound than it was 15 years ago when it was launched. New countries are still joining the euro. You yourself said that the prime cause of the problem in Greece with the euro was coming from the United States with bent figures from an American business. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the British economy is not exactly a master display of... I mean, if we are doing that well out of the euro, why have we been hit so hard? We should be benefiting from non-euro membership. Precious little sign of that. And, of course, they talk about the eurozone not being a single economy. The UK is not a single economy. You go to Blackpool or up to Cumbria and tell them the economy is recovering and make sure you've got your medical insurance first. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. There are wide disparities within the UK. Look at Lincolnshire house prices compared to London. Yeah, no, all good points. But I think, um, I mean, on the euro, sort of more fundamentally about how it should be designed and so on, I think there should be greater um, recognition that you do need to think about those disparities, you know, in, in um, economic terms um, and industrial policy, fiscal policy, you know, across the area as well. You know, not just think you can set monetary policy and... Well, surely the answer is you need a single fiscal policy leading with regions in the same, you know, rather than have each country doing their own thing and half of them filling the books. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Surely there's a much more fundamental reason for the, the crisis in so much as, if you look at the latter half of the 20th century, you've got most of the really powerful earning ability of the world concentrated in a very small part of it. Uh, and then suddenly China and India start producing vast numbers of engineers and vast amounts of in innovation, thereby creating vast flows of wealth into them, which they then go and allow us to go and have a little uh, spending spree on. And isn't that a more fundamental and basic explanation for it? Not, you can't, surely you can't really blame it all on the bankers when that's more of a symptom than a problem. Um. Well, it's certainly um, a factor, and it would certainly be better if, yes, if the, uh, the world economy was more um, regulated to prevent those huge imbalances <coughs> um, having, having grown up. Um, so, I mean, I think those yeah, do need to be tackled as well. Um, but nevertheless, you know, and it I think... it the manner of it breaking rather than the fact that it breaks, I suppose. Um, well, I think if, if, if we'd um, continue with the sorts of... Um, Global regulations previously, then those sort of those sort of um, imbalances wouldn't have been able to to uh, build up. There would have been pressure on um, the Chinese to have imported more themselves to reduce their their balance of payments um, surplus. And I don't see how that would have worked. I mean, you've got um, you know the big changes are things like the separation of, of risky banking from safe banking, but that doesn't really affect the fact that the big amounts of excess spending are actually coming from things like the generous government uh, programs and um, protective barriers uh, that prevent trade flows in both directions, north-south and east-west and so forth. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what point you well, made. I mean, if you, if, if you s s the sort of regulations that you're putting at the core of it were things like proper cap capital adequacy, and separating the merchant banks from the, uh, or the risk-taking banks from the um, savings banks. But that wouldn't really have changed the, the, the fact that um, the money was that China was earning was pouring into America, and wouldn't, I don't see why, how that would have imposed a force to push the money back yeah. and make them spy our stuff. 
Right. Well, yeah, well, there's two things. A, a um, these huge flows of financial capital, um, finances are, is a new thing, you know, since the golden age of capital. That was part of the, the deregulation and so on. I mean, there used to be controls on all those, those flows. And at the time, it was said that, yeah, when you move those flows, okay, you see a, a huge, you know, movement of funds just like when you remove a dam, you know, for sort of self out, and then things would go back to how they were, and financial flows would just be for real activities, people are going on holiday or wanting to build a, a factory in Portugal. Um, and that's proved completely wrong. There was that huge surge when <coughs> remo uh, the, the controls were removed, and it's got more and more and more each mm. year around setting out as you had more and more of this speculation, and, and added to the, the point you make, the fact that China is selling so many goods, getting all this money, and so putting it back into you know, America and the other deficit countries. So one point is, you know, it was a, it was a, a new idea to deregulate and go back to the ideas where you could have these huge um, um, amounts of capital sloshing around. Um, but what, what Keynes said, he didn't quite get his own way because the Americans, you know, were calling the shots. Um, but his whole point is that you shouldn't allow those imbalances to, to um, develop. And if a, if a country is getting um, a big surplus, a trading surplus like China was, they should be obliged to reflate their economy and spend more domestically so that they they uh, start buying more things themselves rather than having to sell them to abroad. Yeah, but we can't abroad. oblige the Chinese to do very much, but we can, I don't see how the regulatory issues that you put at the core of managing it could have obliged our end of things to stop those flows, short of uh, capital controls and um, so forth, it would simply have slowed everything down and made everything poorer and stopped the Chinese from growing so fast. Yeah. I think it all depends who you mean when you talk about making everybody poorer, because if the if precisely because of the capital flows, because of the financial crash, we are now truly poorer because we don't produce anything for people to buy because we put all our eggs into the capital flows, go into another country, and people and and our tax and deposits from that. And um, I think that. Um, this whole, you know, I think Ed Miliband did have a point when he said that um, that you can't compete with the race to the bottom. You know, that I think that we, we really do need to reintroduce capital flows and that uh, barriers against capital flows and that we have to somehow rein them back in to investing in, in the infrastructure in Britain so that um, people can be trained up to such an extent that China would want to buy our products. Okay, I think us three have continuous debate over a glass of wine, but were you trying to get in at the fact? Yeah, I just, I think you were, you were trying to allude to the fact that this sort of uh, Milton Friedman, uh, you know, wrote a book to, to hold us flat, and I think you were, you were trying to, I, th I think the, the capital flow is this, this idea, this Friedmanite uh, idea that the, the world is flat and, and we should pursue this idea. Now we're connected. You know, the internet has connected us now. We're all, we're all connected. So let's get this capital flowing. But that, that didn't, didn't work out. So, you know, an author like maybe per, perhaps like uh, Panjit uh, uh, Gamawat uh, as, a, as, a, as a writer who's written in that area uh, has, has sort of semi-disproved this, that cultural, uh, you know, uh, divisions and economics and governance and all these things do play a role. And the world isn't flat. That's what you're you're trying to allude. You know, there's this massive flow of capital, and why couldn't we stop all the, all this? But there was an idea that that was 
circulated through every MBA program uh, around the world, globally, and people were buying into that concept. Maybe perhaps others would disagree with me, but uh, at the time. So I think that's what you're alluding yeah. to. Okay, well, we've run out of time, so why don't we take your question over a glass of wine, if you don't mind. <laughs> that's all right. Okay, well, thank you all very much. Talk about. 